Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that Bart, the soft rock instrumental by soft rock band Ruby that was regularly used to accompany the BBC School's Clock and Pages and CFAX, was written by the band's winningly named bassist, Randy Oder. <laughs> I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that nobody else ever seems to, is writer Phil Norman. Phil, what you up to? Where can we find it? Well, my most recent book is uh, still available. It's a history of TV in 100 programmes. And yeah. <laughs> well, having read it, I know that one of the 100 programmes featured wasn't your first choice. I can't believe somebody has finally chosen this. And the title of it should be quite obvious from this rather strange bit of music. there from Over the Moon, a programme with opening titles that are just seared into my memory, and I suspect they will be into yours as well. Yes, I'm surprised, yeah, this hasn't been done before, because this programme was around for like years and years, wasn't it? It was first shown in 1978, and apparently it was repeated until 1983, and probably yeah. about 15 times during that time frame, I think. Yeah, so basically the opening titles, it's that kind of cute, but very kind of disorientatingly cute look that a lot of stuff has had around that time so i think what the character who's exploring the world in a state of wonder is meant to be is a cross between a hare and a question mark although it looks more like an elephant and a paperclip it's got a very strange kind of sightless eyes and it just leaps around you know waving at the fish and like exploring the natural world and then yes we're just thrown into it's basically a sort of miscellany program wasn't it yes it was very much explaining signs the under five presented by sam dale who was the sort of standard late 70s character actor which it's always puzzled me because you know it's supposed to all those actors that don't play characters but <laughs> yes sort of explaining concepts like wheels and the idea of time and space and so on and those opening titles more interesting than the program itself i always had it down the sort of coat hanger man but it's yes it's yeah. how odd just that whole sequence is it's got one of those synths you only got around then as well that went <laughs> sort of accompanying his on-screen bounces and i could never really understand the correlation between that peculiar question mark figure and the contents of the program because he didn't he i say he i could be using completely the wrong appellation there but whatever it was didn't feature in the program in any capacity because it was just the studio bits with sam dale i think there were short films of you know yeah. sort of showing children boiling a kettle or something probably something a bit safer than that but there were also animations done by the same team that animated pigeon street yes they have very yeah. droll songs accompanying them the ones that i particularly remember was jasper carrot doing a song about angus mcbluff who i think was a wildlife enthusiast there was rat van winkle by kim goody who i think kim goody sang the opening the well the bits where it goes over the moon and the opening theme as well about oh, yeah. a rat who went forward in time but went backwards at the same time or something oh, carol right. did one called archer's arrow which was sort of an arrow's eye point of view as it flew through the 
Yeah. And the one that everyone remembers, Obadiah Blank by Derek Griffiths, which is about yes. an inventor who kept inventing things like the electric spoon and growing poppies on the moon. Those two lines were adjacent to each other. I'm sure it would be quite <laughs> obvious. But he eventually got bored of inventing. So he invented a machine that could invent more things for him. And throughout, he kept posing questions like, well, who grew poppies on the moon? Obadiah Blank. Then they shifted to, who invented the chair that walked? The machine of Obi Blank. It seemed to go on for about eight years. And it just, yeah. if anyone remembers anything about Over the Moon, it seems to be that song. It's a chilling premonition of AI, isn't it, really? Doesn't it end with the machine inventing him? This parcel comes out of, like, the machine's sort of funnel, and then it unwraps it, and it's another one of him, and they stick a key in it, and it's back and starts it up. It's something like that, which, I mean, you know, seeing as this is for, like, preschool children, this is getting pretty sort of deep, I think. Well, Rat Van Winkle was quite kind of dystopian and, you know, warning of a potential... I don't think it was quite an apocalypse, but I think he didn't like the future because things went too fast at the same time as going too slow or something like that. And it all seems to be... It's on a par... The opening titles Once Upon the Time Man. It's got that oh God, existential yeah. dread for the under fives <laughs> going on. But it was. I mean, I tend to associate it with seeing it on Sunday mornings in that kind of first thing on BBC One slot. But it was actually originally, I think it was the very last new Watch With Mother show before it became Seesaw. And it was part of that. They, they did a sort of tranche of studio-based shows like Ragtime and How Do You Do? And this was one of them. And because of that, very little of it now exists, unfortunately. It's kind of odd that it's a sort of hodgepodge of other things, isn't it? Because it's a bit play school. It's a bit Pigeon Street, obviously. It's a bit like Stop, Look and Listen. There's a bit of Look and Read in there. You know, it's sort of... I think maybe that's why a few people seem to remember it than perhaps they should, because perhaps they remember bits of it, but you might attribute it to something else. To be fair, though, even if you only remembered the opening titles and that weird character and oh, God, Obadiah yeah. Blank, you know, that is, <laughs> that's more or less the prisoner, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Very true, yeah. Do you remember, because this did survive into the seesaw slot for a while, and you know you've got those continuity slides before it where you get things like, say, obviously cut out storybooks, but Bagpuss and Gabriel the Toad on each side of the seesaw, and there's yeah. the King Rollo and Bric-a-Brac one where you've got King Rollo on the left-hand side and a giant photo of part of Brian Kant's head <laughs> on the other. Oh, or if God. it was something like Chock-a-Block where there was nothing you could use, it would just be an empty seesaw. Can you guess what they use for this? Not the paperclip. Two of two of it. Yeah, and it was like a Latter-day Artist impression as well. It was like thicker and a deeper blue, with more sort of Maximilian from the black hole eyes. Oh god. It's something to do with like the sightless eyes, because they were just two spheres, weren't they, that kind of floated in space little two sort of little black dots and those were the eyes and yeah like the rest of the trunk I suppose kind of curled around that and it was it remind was it the orb did the orb they did an album didn't they in the 90s called Snivelization was that then was it Orbital that was Orbital wasn't Orbital it? Yeah. I always get them mixed up but that had a weird sort of uh, <laughs> pencil sleeve and I swear it's on there somewhere it is it does have basically the over the moon man on the cover of yeah it. it's those it's those sort of sightless eyes suspended in space they're a bit odd apparently because I, I did look this up on the excellent Ravensbourne University BBC programme titles website and it was designed by a guy called Ray Ogden who also was like the head graphic designer on Captain Zepp 
So there's a link there between bizarre sort of headed creatures, because that was, was Captain Zepp's forte, wasn't it? Like felt tip drawings of like weird insectoid things doing each other in in the munitions bay. Well, yes, it's very much looking forward to, even though it's from 1978, very much predicting what would go on in the 80s, not just in terms of that link. But I think, I mean, I said it was Last Watcher's Mother Show, but it sort of leads towards things like Chock-A-Block and Stop Go. It's got that, the 80s are here vibe about <laughs> it. It's a bit like bands like Landscape, I suppose. They are the over the moon of pop music. <laughs> yeah, but it was there's something about the character that just seared itself into my brain. And I probably, it took me ages before I could put it to a program. It's one of those things, isn't it, where you just have this image and it's so vivid. It's just so vivid, kind of, you know, in your memory. And then everything else kind of, I don't know, gravitates around it. Well, I suppose we have our lucky stars to thank for Obadiah Blank for that, because I'm sure he, whatever that thing was, he probably invented it. Okay, we're moving on to your next choice now. And while it does sound a little bit like you were slightly disturbed by the Over the Moon Pin Man, I'm not sure you've been quite so frightened by this. second classic there love bud starsky with amityville the house on the hill phil who was he and why was he going there basically i would say this is the last knockings of proper old school rap which is you know like the spangly jacket and cardigan era before it moved into like tracksuits and adidas and stuff like that yeah love bud starsky i think he's sort of he was quite an important figure in hip-hop he's one of the people who claims to have invented the phrase hip-hop itself which i think well there's probably about half a dozen people that claim that as well but uh, i mean i remember when this came out and the problem with sort of the way hip-hop was looked at especially in this country was it was seen as like a series of novelty records so you know you'd obviously had rappers to like years and years ago but then by the mid 80s you got dougie fresh doing the show you had the real roxanne and then you had amityville and they were all sort of seen you know because you know dougie fresh had the beatboxing and the comedy telephone ring impersonation the real roxanne had like loads of Looney Tunes samples and this had some kind of mainly monster movie themed impressions. Bella Lugosi and whoever the voice in Monster Mash is supposed to be based on. I don't know if it's Charles Lawton or something is it? And then there's like a whole sequence where you've got William Shatner and you know and Spock and Scotty and I think the reason for that is that obviously Lovebug Starsky didn't do the impressions himself. 
it was a, a guy who was like on the improv circuit at the time. So he's kind of like a sort of probably somebody who would knock around with like Jerry Seinfeld back in the 80s. His name was Ron Darian, I think. I'm glad you could find that because I couldn't find it. But I have a vivid memory of at the time when this was out, Simon Bates getting really <laughs> angry on Radio 1 when he found out Love Bud Starsky hadn't done the voices himself. He's going, nope, not going to play it. Nope. Bedford oh, the really? On. Yes, oh, he was God. furious. Oh. So justice at last for the Impressionists. Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't think he was credited on the sleeve. I don't think. So Ron Darren had like two gimmicks. He had one thing where he did an impression of a like a, a malfunctioning airport tannoy. And then his other routine was about watching in the mid 80s, watching late night reruns of Star Trek and he'd do the voices. So obviously when they got him in to do like the monster impressions, he said, you know, I'm actually slightly better at doing Star Trek ones. Can we squeeze Star Trek in anyway? And so they did. It's not a massively pivotal record <laughs> in hip-hop history, I don't think. But it's one of those, you know, when I was that age and I was just getting into it, it's like, I, you know, I didn't know where to go. So it, it was like anything that got into the charts, the lower reaches of the charts, I would end up buying. And it was always kind of puzzled me how certain records, you know, certain hip-hop records got in and others that you'd think were like the certs, you know, just didn't. Which I guess it's probably, you know, in those days, it was probably down to, does Gary Davis like this enough? Because it would just be that, wouldn't it? It's, he could make or break. Absolutely. And there was the whole, you know, sniffiness towards hip-hop even at that point anyway. Oh, yeah. But like you say, this was almost the last gasp of the original iteration of hip-hop. Because I don't think I would have felt this at the time, but when you look at his Top of the Pops performance now, it retrospectively, it feels like a Lenny Henry sketch about, ha-ha, what were they thinking 18 months ago? And of course, the previous year, he had done a single called Rapping, Apostrophe, oh, yeah. which <laughs> Just in the film rapid apostrophe as well. And the thing is, those records now, I am actually not saying this in a derogatory sense, really, but they are closer to rap rapping by Roland Rat than they would have felt at the time. <laughs> it was a bit like there was a sort of almost a year zero at some point in 1986, probably related to Run DMC. Yes. And yes. all of this started to look a bit kind of, I don't know, unsophisticated, maybe, which, you know, wasn't really fair, but that's how fashion moved on at the time. Yeah. Well, definitely, suddenly, you got, you know, Run DMC. Well, Run DMC had been around for a while, I guess, but, you know, visibility in, like, the charts in this country. Yeah, there's, like, 1986, 1987, Run DMC, Eric Bean, Rakim, even Salt and Pepper were clearly, like, you know, from a different kind of genre, almost. Well, I was just about to criticise the lyrics of this, but mentioning Eric Bean and Rakim... <laughs> Things did improve lyrically, but I don't think they got that much more well thought out because do you remember what their cunning plan at the end of Paid in Full was to cover the fact that they'd taken so long to make the record that their girlfriends would be annoyed? <laughs> it was that they would tell their girlfriends the record had taken a long time to make. Oh, yes. You go to your girl's house and I'll go to mine. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> but here, I do have a problem with the fact that Amityville is not really, in any quantifiable sense, the house on the hill. And it is not no. somewhere where these classic horror monsters will congregate either. It didn't come out around Halloween, did it? It came out in, like, May. Yeah. Because I remember, I remember hearing it in the... I associate it with the summer of that year. So it's not, you know... It wasn't a Halloween-related thing. It was just... Yeah, there. Because I, I had bought his album 
on the strength of that on cassette obviously and yeah everything else is just like pretty standard of that old school era hip-hop there's one song at the end which i think was basically just them trying to pad the album out where they just have a like sort of almost proto trip hop beat going on for about eight minutes and he does like monster noises over the top just for like eight minutes he's like going with some effects on it's it's clearly smacks of oh god we got to get this album up to like 40 minutes and again you know we could chortle at that but what was bonus beats by nwa if it wasn't quick just have some (laughs) beats and they're bonus as well they're free I forget which Love Bug Starsky song it was. It was like, you know, one he did several years before. I think it might be You've Got to Believe. You've Got to Believe or I've Got to Believe. You've Got to Believe had this little kind of synth cowbell jingle that went da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And apparently that is what Johnny Marr is trying to play in How Soon Is Now on that guitar riff. You know, he goes roughly like that. Apparently, he was doing it because people just were sort of, you know, in the media were going, oh, the Smiths, they've just got a couple of sources from the 50s and 60s, and that's all they do. And he was going, no. Well, actually, how soon this now might have been then live and by, I'm going to say Morrissey doing Captain Kirk and classic monster impressions, but he more likely to do something like, I don't know, John Pertwee in the house that dripped blood or something, <laughs> or a continuity announcer before the Hammer House of Horror. That would be more yeah. his speed, really. But it's very strange how completely forgotten it is though because like I say I think it got in the top 10 he was on top of the pops at least twice it was on now 7 which is sort of considered you know the definitive of the original nows by a lot of people including Radio's Dermot O'Leary who was surprised to hear the other day and it's just vanished yeah it's odd because other like novelty hip hop records that were hits of that era I mean you know people remember the real Roxanne quite a lot Dougie Fresh you know these have sort of stayed but yeah he kind of vanished pretty much I mean, is lyrical. What was the like? When I got to the house, the grass was over the fence. It wasn't just as high as the fence, it was over the fence. No, it was over the fence, yeah. It's <laughs> just setting the scene. Yeah. But as you say, it's kind of unfair in a way that because there were so many actual novelty records that used rap because it was seen as quite an easy thing to do, genuine rap hits kind of got shoved into the novelty bracket alongside them. I mean, Amityville's not entirely innocent of being a novelty rap record but yeah i think you know some of them got a bit of a raw deal perhaps well i think as well the goalposts have been moved on what constitutes novelty in that regard because some of those things that they sampled were not joke samples at the time well no you look at if this is a novelty record then what's to say three is the magic number shouldn't be because it samples you know a school's television program yeah exactly yeah because something like you know the real roxanne hit bang zoom let's go go that is built I mean, for all the Looney Tunes samples and everything, that is built on a sample from, like, John McLaughlin. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, the sort of... Oh, I can't remember what tune it is, but, you know, the basic, that sort of clangorous noise that's going in the background throughout, that is a John McLaughlin sample. The bit that sounds like milk bottles falling down the stairs. Yeah, it's the start of, you know, this heavily revered sort of prog jazz rock maestro. Okay, well, on that surprising note, moving on to your next choice, which is, this is actually from a film version of it, but it's a book about a youngster who might not have had that much time for novelty rap samples. Okay, keep it together. Don't get confused. Don't let those thoughts get in the way. Maybe Amy was right. Maybe my life is a mystery. There's so much about my past that I don't understand. There's so many locked doors. What are you looking for, Skipper? 
I need some air for my tires. Behind the old barrels. I have to keep it hidden because you never know these days. Okay, bit of dialogue there from the 1983 film version of I Am The Cheese, based on the 1977 novel by Robert Cormier. Phil, what was this? The thing is, this is kind of like a bit of a guilty secret of mine, because when I was young, when I was like a school kid, I really hardly read anything at all, you know, which is something I've always regretted. Partly because I wasn't really encouraged, you know, the family didn't really encourage it, and when teachers did, they'd always give me something like, you know, The Hobbit, which, you know, loads of people like I didn't go for any that sort of thing but also partly when i did pick a book i would gravitate towards stuff like this basically i am the cheese is a story about a kind of an american schoolboy, and he's taken a mysterious bicycle journey across new hampshire or you know some kind of eastern part of the united states and gradually and this is mixed in with like these suspicious sounding interviews he's being interviewed by some kind of authority figure about his past And as things go along, you work out that at some point his dad worked for either the FBI or some secret service organization. He got in trouble with the mob and they had to go in witness protection. So him and his parents, when he was about four years old, they just uprooted and had to change their names and, you know, go and live a different life and everything. So he's obviously got a bit of trauma from that. And then, you know, you gradually fill in this picture as he's going across. You cut between these interviews and him taking his bike across America and then at the end I suppose I should say spoilers for like a 50 year old children's book so it turns out in the end that his parents he didn't only have to uproot and go and take on this new life but his parents were actually later killed in a car crash which may have been an assassination attempt and so at the end of the book he's on his bike his parents are dead and he hasn't actually been cycling across America at all he's just been cycling round and round the grounds of this secure mental health facility where he's going to spend the rest of his life and that's it the end yeah so i'd read a book like this and then go well i don't think i'm going to read a book for a while now if they're going to be like that it's very it's astonishingly downbeat and grim but it's one of those sort of kids books that you know do that and yeah that's the sort of thing i had the amazing sort of facility of just picking out books that ended up like that and then i just go oh god well i was wondering how you came across it because it strikes me as a sort of book that there would always be every school library had one book where you just used to look at it and think how did that get there <laughs> things like the dragon in the garden or gary corby plays chicken you know what it, it seemed to alter the entire ethos that your school tried to present as its image yeah that's probably what kind of attracted me to them in some bizarre way i must have been a glutton for punishment yeah i think the cover of this was just like a morose looking kid sat in what looked like a prison cell with some keys hanging on a like hook in the background and yeah obviously i thought yeah that looks like a riveting read that'll be good but yeah it's you know the it's a haunting book definitely you know it gives you like a very vivid image but yeah downbeat is not the word really well yeah i was gonna say there does seem to have been the trend for downbeat young adult i suppose you call it fiction in that era and i'm not quite sure why because surely things were bleak enough in the real world without needing to fuel that with entertainment (laughs) as well it is that sort of it does annoy me that there's that split view of the 70s where, you know, we're now encouraged to think that everything was basically like, no disrespect to Series 1 of Look Around You, which I love, but like Series 1 of Look Around <laughs> You, like Life on Mars, yeah. like a public information film. Whereas, you know, where was Hartley Hair in all that? Where was the milk tray, <laughs> man? 
the image that people bring to mind is a space hopper, which, try as you might, you cannot make that hauntological. No. It's a big yeah. orange thing with a ridiculous <laughs> kangaroo face on it. And, you know, these books are part of that, but there must have been books that weren't. But it's just I'm hard pushed to think of any. Yeah, I don't know. It's also another thing, the fact that so many of these books I ended up picking were American. I don't know if I just thought, oh, well, that's exotic, that'll be different or something. But you always had this slight remove because they always used to, you know, the, you had references. It was always, if anything's going to be set in a school, you know, you're completely at sea because it's going to be like high schools and semesters and you're going, oh, God, what's going on? How old are they meant to be? And that kind of thing. God, another book that I read, bizarrely, before the film had come out, I got hold of like the novelization of E.T. Now that is a strange novelization. It's just got, A, it goes into too much detail about how Elliot's mom is sexually frustrated. What? Yeah, it's like there's lots of bits from her point of view, you know, that she's, it's a male writer, funnily enough. But yeah, it goes into all that and then there's lots of just talk about like weird sort of things like the whole plot revolves around E.T. having to construct his machine doesn't he to transmit to his spacecraft to come and get him back so there's loads of stuff about getting her fuzzbuster working apparently a fuzzbuster is you know people have them now and it's like detects police radar so you have it on your dashboard so you can slow down in 1982 absolute mystery well there is a peculiar link there with E.T. because as I mentioned there was a film version of this in 1983 with the leak character was played by Robert McNaughton who's the older brother in E.T. that doesn't really do very much <laughs> about from getting told to take his shoulder pads off because they might frighten E.T. It's also got a very young Cynthia Nixon in it and Robert Wagner as well. Really? Oh, right. I, that probably wasn't... Would that have been shown in this country? Probably would have done at some point, but yeah. It looks like the only upload I found online has got a Vestron VCI ident at the start, so I suspect it was straight to VHS. Oh, right, yeah. It'll be one of those things that you get in the video shop you know and then think oh this is, this is not what I had in mind but the other peculiar thing about it was I was very puzzled by the title so I looked into where that had come from and apparently it's from The Farmer in the Dell which is basically the farmers in his den in America yeah yeah and apparently there is a verse that ends with E-I-A-D-O the cheese stands alone yes and I had thought yeah. that, that doesn't appear in it but then it suddenly occurred to me that obviously spoilers anyone who's not seen The Wire there is a character that Omar Little who whistles well I suppose the farmer in the dell while he approaches the people he's going to hustle at one point he called us cheese wag stuff and says the cheese stands alone ah. which I always thought was just Omar's bravado but obviously he's, <laughs> he's meta quoting it's kind of like serial killer motif <laughs> Yeah, no, that, yeah, that's weird because obviously the title of the book is kind of something that you're thinking, well, this is obviously, there's obviously some reason for this title. What's it going to be? What's it going to be? Yeah, and, and then it ends on, okay, it's part of this song, but I don't remember that being in the song. So <laughs> it kind of disorientates you even more. You are right, though, about there was a real kind of exotic allure to anything set in America involving teenagers in those days when we just weren't familiar with, well, even things like Hamburg seem like an exotic unattainable luxury that they yeah. treated as you 
know, almost something they casually disregarded. Oh, not more milkshakes. <laughs> when did people in this country stop saying beef burgers as well? Because that, you know, it was beef, you know, it, it was always beef burgers, wasn't it? Until sometime in the 80s. I suspect you could pinpoint that by watching all of the McCain's adverts in the 80s in order. Not yeah. birds. Birds, I would have persisted with beef burgers until about three years ago, probably. But <laughs> McCain's were always sort of trend surfing. So they oh, would yeah. have been straight onto that. But yeah, you are right. That did happen. I presume there's no town in Germany called Beefburg, but there may be. <laughs> that was where the bootleg Beatles played. <laughs> okay, well, had you actually got the chance to see the film version in a cinema, you could probably have bought one of your next choice on the way in. WFLA. Wearing farcical lino attire. Okay, an advert there for WFLA, which seems to be the only factual detail that is still out there about this drink anywhere on the internet. So, Phil, <laughs> fill us in. Yeah, well, this, it's probably more the advert than the drink, because I don't remember ever even seeing it in, like, a shop. But, yeah, the adverts were, for a short while, for probably, like, a space for a couple of months, they were kind of ubiquitous. Yeah, so WFLA is basically a milkshake. But it's a milkshake aimed at, if not adults, then, you know, the older, cooler kids. Because they got whoever, I don't know which company kind of marketed it, but whoever did obviously said, right, we're going to go all in on style for this one. So they got the people who were behind Max Headroom and a load of other stuff like that. Rocky Morton and Annabelle, is it Jankel or Yankel? Yes, of course, is it the Quattro yes. advert? Yes, of course, yeah. So they commissioned them to do, basically, it's kind of a proto sort of Max Headroom affair is slightly before they did Max Headroom but it has the geometric backgrounds always used to spin behind Max Headroom's head they've got some of those in it's kind of a corny concept really because they thought WFLA which I don't think stands for anything I just think the marketing department one of them had been on holiday in Florida and he liked the fact that WFLA which is like the local radio station be advertised everywhere so he thought oh that'll be a good name for a milkshake yeah so they had this thing so they said right okay let's invent some wacky things that WFLA can stand for. So you've got wives for lovesick androids. They do a little green screen setup of that. So you've got like people in cardboard robot costumes holding flowers and then going, driving around in sort of Mr. Smith bubble cars. It was just sort of oblique comedy, but with a heavy sort of helping of like Blitz magazine style thrown in. So you can see they've got their market. You know, if this is the sort, this is a milkshake for Robert Elms, basically. Well, yes. I mean, I remember these adverts and looking back now, they look kind of like a trailer for a show on Channel 4 where you saw it and thought, I don't understand what that is. I'm not watching that. <laughs> yeah. It's got a weird mishmash of the music is quite retro, but it's got sort of vocal interjections like you might have heard on the new music record. Visually, 
it's somewhere between the cover of ID and sort of 20s design. It's an early example of, apparently there's a proper name for it at the time, Young Fogies, but I've always called it Frisps Chic. That sort of <laughs> weird 80s view of the 20s that was around. And yeah. this is an early manifestation of that. And I still cannot work out, I don't think I ever encountered anyone in real life who was interested in this Frisp Chic stroke Young Fogieism at all. But it did seem to be everywhere. Yes. As an aspirational attainable goal in some way. Yeah, there was an odd sort of, I don't know, was it because there wasn't really a sort of overriding kind of fashion or style in like the mid 80s? It was a bit of a kind of hodgepodge of things, wasn't it? So perhaps it was just like, oh, right, let's pull something out. Let's go pre-war and kind of see what we can do. But even then, Milkshake is surely more affiliated with the 50s. And there have been that sort of neo 50s revival in the late 70s. Would have made more sense to tie it to that? Yeah, oh, that's from a, true. From a commercial footing rather than the style footing. Yeah, didn't all sort of adverts for kind of, you know, novelty, like there was a lot of instant tea, wasn't there? They experimented with that a lot. And all those sort of adverts had women in sort of like 1950s skirts standing at a diner. The Shell petrol promotion adverts, they were all doo-wop, weren't they? Let's go to the shop. <laughs> <laughs> the chalk dip one with Big Dipper. Oh, God, Where a yeah. nerd playing bongo said, hey, Big Dipper, give us the beats. Because <laughs> all the kids who were going to buy Chalk Dip obviously wanted to race out after seeing someone who was a bit like the Fonz, but not quite. <laughs> there were loads of them. There was that Walker's Crisps one with Just So Joe, where it had the kind of doo-wop gang following him. Oh, that's right. Yes. His name's Joe oh. Jones. I'm a fussy so-and-so. That's why they call him Just So Joe. Yeah. <laughs> What the car's got to have is go, go, go. What the girl's got to have is hello, hello, hello. But give him any kind of crisps, he won't make a racket just as long as it says, Walkers on the packet. <laughs> Do you remember how it ended as well after the, the voiceover, man? Oh, no. All together. No. It did not inspire me to buy any variety of Walker's crisps, to be honest with you. No, no. The bits no. of pizza advert had more effect. That had a punk in it. <laughs> the bits of pizza? Oh, not the... Dave Clark 5 yes, bits and pieces. Yes, yes. If I don't get Walker's, I'm a hard-boiled head case. There was this very strange view of... It seemed to be, in the 80s, very much... Right, we've got the kids' attention now. Let's force on them what we think they should be liking. It's like the way with Stock Aitken Waterman acts. After a certain point, they would come a jukebox ballad from the 50s. That's it, yeah. You'd have Jason Donovan dressing up as all of the Beatles, wouldn't you? What was that one? Didn't he? That was I'm Doing I'm Fine. I'm Doing Fine, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Sonia doing End of the World, and there were quite a few others, weren't there? But I am not convinced that anyone in the target audience age bracket liked all of these stylings that foisted on them, and maybe that's why. Nobody actually bought, because, like I say, there's virtually nothing online about WFLA, apart from people saying, I remember the adverts but I never bought it maybe that's because it must have been a bit like the Mr Plough advert in the Simpsons (laughs) was that your advert dad I don't know yeah I mean what was the slogan no tin no fizz no lobster it's like oh yeah okay that was there that was the slogan no tin no 
no fizz. Okay, so it's a yeah, it's a milkshake. It's not fizzy. And then no lobster. It's like surrealism 101. Okay, there you go, lobster. Just we'll get people paying attention, won't it? Yeah. Will it get people buying the actual products? I'm just wondering how long the young fogies lasted for, though. Obviously, in the early 90s, you got dupe by dupe, but I think that's a little late to be a byproduct of that. So where did they go? I don't know. Well, it was all advertising-led, wasn't it? I mean, you had that point where you had Bill Withers and Marvin Gaye back in the charts off the back of mainly Levi's adverts, didn't you? Once the advertising people got bored, they kind of moved on. I don't think there was a grassroots element to this at all. And still nobody knows how and why the Reap Petite video happened. Every account that's ever been given for the backstory to it falls apart on, you know, even the most cursory examination. Really? <laughs> it wasn't in an advert, was it? But, no, but no. The most commonly accepted thing is, oh, it was commissioned for Arena when they did the special on Jackie Wilson. A, there was no special on Jackie Wilson. B, can you see Arena commissioning that? No, no. Yeah, it was... <laughs> Yeah, that was a strange period in time, didn't it? Did they do two or three plasticine Jackie Wilson videos? There was, they did one for I Get the Sweetest Feeling, which had the couple dancing in a flat. Yeah. Sort of flowers mouthing along to the backing vocals. Yeah. They did Higher and Higher. Higher and Higher, which was like a comedy caper video about a man who was having an affair being chased out of a window. And I think the plasticine Jackie Wilson appeared Annette a foot-long hoagie. back on the one hand i do think it is great that those records got back into the charts on the other hand how demeaning to jackie wilson <laughs> I, basically yeah. it was like a home bargains morph yeah <laughs> to an entire generation yeah here's our tribute oh yeah he's the man who had like trumpets coming out of his <laughs> nostrils can you remember that <laughs> And then he turned into a baby by sweating. It's... <laughs> Nina Simone was a cat as well, don't forget Oh, that's that. right, yeah. But back to WFLA. Apparently it was available in choc mint, hazelnut and coffee. Grown-up flavours, you see. Sophisticated, yeah. Do you know what? I cannot figure this out at all. <laughs> who it was aimed at and why. But speaking of that, your next choice, I mean, you can see who it was aimed at, but why is a different question altogether. sound like it should be a TV theme from 1964 and believe me the visuals that go with it look like they should be from 1964 like they were the titles of Sweet Vail Piste or something but it's absolutely not it's 1985 and it's Spy Trap Phil what was going on here this is one of those children's game shows that is not really so much a bright idea as like sort of half a dozen quite dull ideas kind of stuck together so yeah Spy Trap was kind of like a junior espionage quiz so you had two teams from various schools I guess, of, you know, three kids each. And they were given kind of a spy mission, which they were supposedly given a mission to be trained as spies. But this took the form of, you know, some quite bog standard kind of memory tests and observation tests, that kind of thing. It was presented by Bill Homewood, who was probably most well known as the guy who spoke backwards in an Australian accent on the adventure game. 
and Bill Pertwee from Dad's Army. So basically, Bill Homewood would be there training them, you know, asking kids. You're saying in that piece of film we just saw what colour was the man's hat, you know, and that kind of thing, observation stuff. And then in between these rounds, Bill Pertwee would make them do press-ups. I suppose it was like, it was trying to do a junior Krypton factor. So it's like, okay, we got the mental and the physical end. So they just run off to this room and like the boys had to do 10 press-ups. No, they had 30 seconds to do as many press-ups as they could. And that gave them extra points. The phrase was, whenever they had one of these rounds coming out, Bill Homer would say, it's time to swing along to the sweat room for some punishment with Pertwee. (laughs) Which... Even in a slightly more innocent age, like 1985, you're a hostage to fortune saying stuff like that, really. Another thing they did, they had a mystery celebrity who had like an overcoat and a false beard, and they just had to interrogate them and guess who it was. And it was invariably someone like Keith Chegwin or Molly Weir. But yeah, it was just like, it was pretty bog standard quiz show. But it was one of those things where the concept behind the quiz was supposed to be, you know, make it this amazing thing. When you got down to it, it's just like, yeah observational rounds press-ups and stuff like that there were also a lot of jokes about oh yes espionage and spying it's exotic you'll go to all these locations you know moscow st petersburg and then they'd ever go oh but we're in hounslow that was the joke that happened every week it was like yeah we're just in richmond down the road that is something you don't get anymore the same joke that didn't work in the first place every week on tv oh, shows I, yeah. mean, I know there's a favorite of both of ours which is on the world according to smith and jones <laughs> <laughs> Every single week in the archive clips, they would contrive to somebody who had a slightly bunched up face and longish hair would say, look, it's Mel. It looks nothing like me. Yeah. The good thing about that was at least you had Mel Smith acting a different reaction each time. You know, through, oh, we go through this every week, Griff. <laughs> but then Smith and Jones actually parodied that program, didn't they? Yes. In their next actual series of Alas, Smith and Jones. Because it was just, they'd just gone over to ITV, hadn't they, for that one thing and it hadn't worked out. But didn't they make about 74 million of them and there were still new episodes of it about three years Oh yeah, yeah, they were still, because they you know, you could just film, it was just them at a desk, you know, introducing clips from old films and making jokes about them so they could have probably done like eight in a day but yeah, when they were back on the BBC they did, what would they call it, a load of old jokes according to Smith and Jones and they just parodied it ruthlessly word for word, while pretty much it was still running out on ITV. And it was also quite telling. They did a book to tie in with it, which is the Smith and Jones World Atlas. Which and is they crossed weird. out the T in Atlas. And yeah. to say, don't worry, we're going back to doing the last Smith and Jones. <laughs> and that's a weird book because most of it isn't actually comedy. It's just it's like a list of countries of the world and like bizarre facts about them. And they actually are genuine facts. And then there's the odd joke. But it's just yeah, it's not a comedy book really. Very strange. But yeah, there was never a spy trap book sadly but on the one hand i think there's an extent to which somewhere underneath it all it's a good idea because it's kind of like the tv equivalent to you know when you would get those presents of mysterious sort of manufacturing provenance where it'd be like solve your own sherlock holmes mystery and it'd be oh, like yeah. a huge plastic tray with loads of gadgets in and then the copy of a study in scarlet in the middle with you know a plain cover with just the name of it on it's sort of like that you know it's kind of like an attempt at some degree of interactivity you know lots of can you figure this out but there are three major problems with it that should have been noticed straight away the first is it's based on the fallacy that was everywhere at that time you know things like beat the teacher and fighters keepers as well that children want to see other children 
doing mm. well and winning things. They don't. Yeah. They want to shout at them for getting things wrong, which is why Nightmare was such, <laughs> such a big success a couple yes. of years later. Yeah, exactly. Second problem is that, you know, like you say, there were these interludes with Punishment with Pertwee. And who wants to see PE after you probably just had double PE last thing at school? Yeah, that was always weird. Nobody wants to be rounded up. The third and biggest thing is this was when Children's BBC had this big relaunch when it ostensibly moved up to date in some ways. Yeah. And the broom yes. cover was introduced and so on. I don't remember Debbie Flint having that much to say about spy travels and the fact that it was on. It felt like a relic from, when I say another age, probably like, you know, 18 months previously. But in those days, in Children's BBC, well, and Children's ITV land, that was a lifetime. Yes, yeah. But it was definitely a programme that was like, it promised this amazing, exciting kind of thing. And the end result was just some kids in chairs guessing the identity of like... Patrick Moore behind a false beard. Okay, we're well moving on to your next choice now, which is a book that, outside of the double PE that we've already remembered with no degree of fondness, you might actually have been reading that day. <laughs> because there's not really anything good use as a clip for this. That was obviously Art Decade by David Bowie as a very crumbly offer as the theme music from a shared obsession of ours, Jonathan Miller's States of Mind, because that's the nearest <laughs> thing I could find to... Well, what is Media Mind? <laughs> Media Mind. Yeah, well, it was basically, it was a large format hardback book with a, like an attached teaching course, basically. And what it was, it was a hodgepodge of various things. But the aim was to basically get kids to deconstruct the media. It was kind of post-structuralism 101 for like primary school kids. I don't know who put it together, like a, some kind of shadowy academics, probably. I know their names. It was Alec oh, Allen. Beverly Allenson and John McInnes. Ah, yeah. So the book, there was obviously a kind of an associated thing for teachers to talk their kids through. But I was given the book as a Christmas present one year. So I just got, you know, the source material rather than the actual course. And what it was, it was kind of like a sort of it was a children's annual but a children's annual without portfolio it was just like bits and pieces of this there was a section from the hobbit there was some michael rosen poem illustrated with pictures of michael rosen pulling faces there were some other you know there was various bits of fiction and then there was a few things about how a newspaper is run what a tv studio is like you know quite dry things that had obviously been clipped from other sources and kind of vaguely linked by someone doing cartoons of these kids you know with magnifying glasses looking at a newspaper was kind of you know holding their heads in sort of hmm thoughtful poses there was a lot of this there were lots of photographs of the Muppets presumably so I don't know this book must have been a nightmare to clear the rights from if they bothered and then the main bit I remember in the middle there was some kind of cartoon comic strip about I think it was set in a TV studio or something and it sort of carried on for a few pages and then there were about eight pages where the strip sort of kind of fell apart and they printed the same thing over and over again in like different colours and then after a few there was just a few pages of this kind of abstract collage bits and pieces and then it gradually resolved and so you know you were literally deconstructing the comic strip but there was no punchline to it it was just there you see we've pulled it apart now you you know I suppose you were meant to sort of go oh well 
well, yeah, I see now a comic strip is made up of different elements, like the illustrations and the narration, and it's made me think. But yeah, it was a very weird book to just have. I mean, if I'd have come across this, you know, in a classroom, there would be, you know, a teacher would have obviously said, oh, look, what do we think's happening here? Well, you know, and that kind of thing. But I just got hold of this thing. And yeah, I don't know if it actually encouraged me to sort of look at media more closely than I was already. I just thought, wow, this is all sort of very strange. And again, slightly disturbing. Mainly, you know, it's because it didn't seem to have like a readily sort of understandable point to it. Well, this is literally, I suppose, a textbook example of the fact (laughs) that I've always thought it's strange that schools' books should not exist in the real world. I remember Mm. being really freaked out when it was in the charity shop somewhere. I saw a copy of, do you remember there were those maths books, Alpha and Beta, and Red Ready for Alpha and Beta, which is kind of introductory thing. I saw a volume of Beta in the charity shop, yeah. and it really kind of bothered me thinking, what's the chain of events that ended up with it being there? Did somebody steal it from a school? It's like if you went round to somebody's house and they had a copy of Trick of Law amongst their books, <laughs> you'd be saying, can I go home now, please? Yeah. I can see exactly why you would have found this disturbing, because books like that look weird enough in school, especially the way they had the design always looked not like other things. And, like, I'm sure that comic strip would have looked not quite like an actual comic strip. Yeah. But without even that context of school, it must have just seemed, like, really weird. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. I always felt like I shouldn't really have this. You know, has it, <laughs> has it been misdelivered? But, yeah, something like, oh, God, the Longman French books with the La Famille Marceau. You wouldn't want to sort of see that in a bookshop. Those should live in the cupboard at the back of the classroom and go back there at the end of the year, and that's it. They shouldn't be in shops. And there was an offshoot of that where those books you only got well say you only got them in school, sometimes you would get them in say like if there was a row of books in a church group or something where there were sort of large format photographic ones that you know told a story of a day in someone's life or something Mm. but didn't seem to have any thread or through narrative really just the fact that something was going on looked really weird just something about the correlation between the size of the image and the size of the text and the font looked wrong Mm. and also printed on this really sort of musty greaseproof paper style pages that all seemed to be falling out as well oh yeah there was something they would not like other books were they there was something is either the yeah it's like you say either the paper or the binding or you know the covering was a bit sometimes a bit wallpapery there was yeah there was something that suggests it wasn't even printed in the same places as proper books apparently it was published in i can't make out an accurate year because there are about five different possible years given online oh good lord maybe it's a series actually but by bowman and noble i can't find anything else about oh right about. not noble and silver no <laughs> i mean it's got a lot in common with their comic universe I'd say. <laughs> noble and silver could be a choice in themselves but we should just actually just rewind slightly and explain states of mind i think oh yeah states of mind as i say i do remember when i first got hold of low the lp and that's on side two is it the last track and I, as soon as that started i thought this is from the tv surely this is from a tv thing and uh, you know obviously this was back in the 80s so i had no way of kind of checking it but yeah eventually you discovered it didn't you did you know that it was from states of mind or did you just know that it was from a program well my background was that i remember states of mind being repeated on a sunday after windmill and taken Obody sword for it on bbc2 so you know after the sort of family-based fact shows mm. fact shows you got jonathan miller <laughs> talking to 
psychologist in a very <laughs> dry manner about various states of mental decay and collapse. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that there was no way back from some of them. And obviously this title sequence with these sort of green concentric circles, obviously supposed to be the mind. With this yeah. tune playing over it, it seems to me to be like a toxic version of the Ormond Cheap theme. <laughs> it's basically only it cheap cup. Like, like there she yeah. goes by the laws. And eventually when I heard low, I thought that states of mind. And the missing link was when TV Cream first started, in the long gone, I was much <laughs> lamented. People still ask me about it now, themes page. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. there was a section called Mystery Themes, which had three things in it? Yes, yeah. It was a sort of like funky war guitar thing we've never identified. There was what became the theme to look some familiar, which we later found out was the theme from the book programme. One of the book programme's themes, yeah. 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 And there was also a bit of art decade. Mm. And you are right, it was me that said that was State of Mind with Jonathan Miller. <laughs> it haunted me in a way because it was like Sunday was saying, you've had your fun, it's back to how Sunday should be. Yeah, because those days, yeah. Sundays were quite gloomy. Oh, yeah, and it was yeah. that afternoon void between... I suppose Windmill and Young Sherlock. Yeah, you know, where uh, you might There's get nothing to do. There might be a western or something, yeah. and that's yeah. State of mind. When was that filmed? Was it late seventies? Yeah. Was it shot in a psychiatrist's office or something like that? Or wasn't it shot on film as well? Because they were on location, which always it always sort of gives it another sort of layer of kind of distancing, doesn't it? People in offices on grainy film talking about very dry and probably by then outdated psychiatric concepts as well but we're staying with very odd things appearing on minority tv channels and scaring you <laughs> in the mid 80s for your next choice which i mean there's not very much dialogue in this at all but here's a bit of it i was woken up by the smell of burning and opened my eyes to see the rising smoke I stamped out the flaming edge of the newspaper and my eyes focused on an article about the tower block demolition on Hackney Marshes the previous Sunday. I looked at the photograph of the leaning building and remembered my conversation with the news agent. I decided to go back to his shop. Okay, bit of narration there from the Black Tower. I don't know if I'm being so jaunty about that. Phil, which Black Tower was this? Now, this was a short film by a guy called, funnily enough, John Smith. He was like a kind of experimental structuralist, I suppose you'd say, filmmaker in the 60s, 70s and the 80s. But this, the Black Tower, was one of these things that Channel 4 would kind of just pull out. It's about... 15, 20 minutes long, I think. It's one of the things that Channel 4 would have on hand as, you know, a schedule filler. So it'd randomly turn up, usually quite late at night. And what it is, it's basically, it's told with a series of photos. And it's just the story of a man who's out walking one day and he looks over his shoulder and he sees in the distance this tower with like a black, it's like a shed on top of a chimney almost. So it's a black kind of tower with a shed at the top. And he talks in, you know, in a very dry sort of that sort of suburban affectless voice about how he saw that. And he thought, oh, that's interesting. And then he went on with his day. And then the next day he sees it again, but in a totally different part of town. And then he keeps seeing it more and more in different angles. And this is all done just by still photos of, you know, obviously photo montages because they're sticking the tower into these different locations. And gradually he gets obsessed with it. And, you know, it's basically, as in all stories like this, he eventually just goes mad and loses it. So, yeah, it's yet another another <laughs> nice well-adjusted happy thing that i was i used to see well it's certainly a satire of something 
Mm-hmm. You can state that with absolute <laughs> certainty. I do think, though, it ties in with... It's a very odd time in the mid-80s. On the one hand, you've got you know, Prince Charles criticising modern architecture, you know, with his, his monstrous carbuncle oh, yeah. business. But on the other, it was a default thing where, you know, where young offenders would be hauled before the cameras for something like states of mind and would say, well, it's not our fault. It's the buildings in it. They make us this way. Yeah, sick building syndrome. Much, so tapping into that, the idea that the whole of society was against you just by yes. existing. <laughs> yeah, alienation. There was a lot of that, especially on Channel 4. This was interesting because this would just appear. I don't think it would even be sort of... Sometimes it wouldn't even be mentioned in the schedules. It was just like dropped in. And it wasn't like... You had things like Ghosts in the Machine, which was like a compilation of experimental stuff. But that was like introduced and they'd say, here's so-and-so from Poland who's done this film. Da, 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 da. So you had some context. But this just kind of appeared and yeah because it's done in this really deadpan way you wouldn't quite know what to make of it you know until you were halfway through even then and that's something that you don't get on channel 4 now or anywhere now you know just these random things just kind of appearing that you just catch out of context and i think we're missing something by not having that you know you know now we sit down to a tv you pretty much know what's going to be on it's not yeah basically nowadays tv wants you to be sort of comfortable you know it doesn't want to sort of alienate you because you might switch over and you know it goes out of its way to kind of include you which obviously a good thing in many ways but it doesn't want to alienate anybody and i think we've missed something you know once that kind of stuff has gone well it was quite a thing i mean this is you know mid 80s channel 4 is a bit late on for this really because i think Mm. they were starting to not channel 4 necessarily but the rest of the tv station started to iron out the schedules a bit and make them a bit more you know you wouldn't get that unbuild episode of look stranger on bbc2 no. <laughs> things like that but there used to be weird little things popping up everywhere because things ran short or you know a program being edited since its original broadcast for various reasons and they had to fill a gap and obviously the one that people always mention is public information films but there are all kinds of things like i don't have to say in every itv region but granada certainly we would get pop plus which oh. is always as has been mentioned on here many times it was usually the video for the butterfly ball yes oh yeah the ones i remember turning up all the time as well the video for jimmy jones by the vapors Oh. And also Big Log by Robert Plant. Oh, God. No, actually, well, he yes. He just drove into... He drives into a petrol station, doesn't he? And that's sort of it. Yes, I do remember Big Log. Yeah, that turning but up. Venice in Peril used to turn up a lot, but there were all yeah, kinds of other yeah. weird things everywhere. Like, the thing I've never managed to identify, which I'd love to know what this was. I used to think it was part of a programme. I now don't, because I believe me, I've checked all the programmes that I thought it could be. <laughs> Unless my theory that it was originally just tacked onto the end of the colour Andy Pan for some reason and has since become lost is correct sometimes there would be in the watcher's mother slot footage of dandelion seeds being blown away intercut i think with a clock with a voice saying Uh. one o'clock two o'clock three o'clock and it was like the sort of thing somebody would make to say nixon was a maniac with his finger on the button (laughs) but in reverse oh right but so many people remember this and nobody can identify it oh right and it was yeah because there was oh god i forget it was like hubert humphrey or some presidential candidate did that didn't they yes it's like a backwards version of that for the end of how do you do wow yeah no i uh, yeah i don't know what that is but yeah i did i mean i've checked it wasn't at the end of how do you do 
or Over the Moon or Colour Andy Pandy, as far as I can tell. So what was it and where was it from? Well, that's the thing, you see. This stuff would just appear and then, you know, you probably never, you may see it again. But yeah, it was just sort of, and these things were often not in the schedule. So they, there's not even a record that they've been shown outside of your own memory. Channel 4 was full of that and full of things like this as well, where it was difficult to say, were they social commentary, were they horror? Whatever it was, they didn't seem to quite accomplish their intended aim, whatever that actually was to begin with. No. I mean, well, John Smith did a lot of these things that were kind of, again, it's like criticising the method of, you know, film itself, because there were, when I actually went to university, did a film studies course, you'd see John Smith films. The one they always show was one he did in the 60s, which is just, it's like 10 minutes of footage of a road in East London and people walking out. But he's recorded the thing, so he says, right, now I want two little girls to walk across and stop and scratch your ass and then carry on walking and then I want a bloke to come in with a beer bottle from the left and go into that door so you know and then it would all happen so you know he's just literally filmed people at random in the street and then reverse engineered a sort of director's commentary of it that was one that always well used to get shown in media studies courses anyway you know because it's deconstructing the medium of course well I do wonder if there seems to have been the sea change in Channel 4 and I think it's because Tony Harrison's V which I think was commissioned to mark the fifth anniversary of Channel 4, was like Mm. a glorified, when I say feature-length, 20-minute version of one of these things. Mm. And it caused so much trouble. Obviously, it was was defining their mission statement. It was hot on the heels of the Red Triangle and all kinds of other things. And I do wonder if that was the point of course correction, where, you know, Channel 4 still stayed weird for a couple of years, but it got noticeably a bit slicker after that. It became more Jonathan Ross's channel than whoever it was that presented Watch the Woman. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I should say, Watch the Woman was a feminist sort of broadside to rage (laughs) show. It wasn't just watching women. It wasn't a video for boys by Sabrina. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. It was, yeah, at some point between 1986 and 1990, yeah, Channel 4 lost like a big chunk of its Channel 4-ness, I suppose. Well, you know who I blame for that? It's the buildings in it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> they make us this. <laughs> they made Channel 4 this way. <laughs> but something slightly lighter that was on Channel 4 around this time weirdly coincided with the name of your next choice, which I don't imagine was ever played on the actual show at all. Look, that's all going to make sense when they say what it is. <laughs>
Okay, I bit there was Soul Train by Swan's Way. No, not Soul Train the program. It's nothing to do with that. This was a single that got to number 20 in 1984. And I don't think anyone apart from you remembers this now, Phil. Yeah, it, it's funny. This is, I mean, this kind of links back to the sort of the young fogey thing that we yes. were talking about. Yeah. Because this is, this is a prime example of that kind of sort of terribly sophisticated, slightly retro zoot suit kind of jazzy grown up pop that you would have, you know, in the middle of the decade. You'd have stuff like, you'd have Sade, Carmel, of course, and stuff like that. But yeah, you'd have Soul Train. So Swan's Way, I don't know much about them. Two men and a lady, they just did this, as I say, sort of like retro, really sophisticated pop that's sort of got a tune, but not quite. There's a lot of woo-wooing in it. And the video was extremely sophisticated. It was them getting taxis to jazzy nightclubs and then standing on stage with a double base and you know the undone bow tie around the neck and hats at rakish angles and all that kind of thing it was definitely that sort of fogeyish you know that retro image it's for some reason that stuck in my head and it kind of stuck in many other people's heads because that was their biggest hit and yeah it's like you say the top 20 was the best that it could do well i know precisely two things about swan's way one is that one of them left and the other two became scarlet fantastic uh, which doesn't yeah. really add up but apart from a general honest to what they were doing yeah Nothing musically adds up. The other thing is, I always used to get them confused with Hipsway. Oh, yes, of course. were a band formed by some of Altered Images around yes. the same time. That was an unfortunate timing on both parts, I'd say. Yes, yeah. Well, there was kind of, yeah, there was a lot of this kind of, you know, in the mid-80s. Well, I suppose there's always been kind of jazz in pop, hasn't there? You know, in the early 80s, you had stuff like Pig Bag. You had Blue Rondo a la Turk, you know, and all this slightly sort of jivey stuff. Then you had this sophisticated stuff, didn't you in the mid 80s and then i guess towards what would you have towards the end of the 80s acid jazz and everything like that there's always been this kind of slightly sophisticated jazzy sort of when were mezzo forte around was that that was oh, the mid- that was about 83 yeah. 84 wasn't it who did the yeah. garden party <laughs> yeah <laughs> which always used for about three years to back every tonight on bbc pond on yes <laughs> this yeah this was basically swan's way's only hit i think think i've heard literally one other song by them which is called something like it's something like when the wild calls or something like that and that's it's kind of similar it sounds like the associates sort of backed by michael nyman it's a little bit over yeah it's much more overpowering and less sort of tasteful and sophisticated than soul train so i guess that was a bit too much for the lower reaches of the charts well i'm going to suggest that this kind of strain of sophisticated you know black and white video i mean look at Swan's Way's Wikipedia page says they presented a mixture of musical influences from jazz to classical to pop to disco, which sort of means nothing really. Yeah. <laughs> that sort of style over style business. Mm. I would say, given that our sort of fellow TV Cream alumni, Steve Williams and Chris Hughes, decided that people like the Motors were looking pop. I think this should be Channel 4 pop. Yes, yeah. You can definitely see it, like, of a piece with, you know, you'd be sitting there, you'd be listening to Soul Train, you'd be slurping on your WFLA, (laughs) (laughs) watching the Black Tower. Thinking about going out and getting some frisps as well. Yes, oh yeah. But again, I'm not quite sure where the audience were for, I don't know, Sophisto pop. 
seems to be a term that darts about all over the place, takes in whoever the person uttering it feels like describing at that point. But there was definitely this very sort of arty strain in sort yes. of 83, 84, 85. And I mean, I appreciate this is because I wasn't a young fogey, but I'm not sure who the audience were. They would always be the last track on the side on not even the Now album, a hits album. Well, I mean, when I was, you know, I was like a teenager at this point, And for me, generally, like if there was a record in the charts, it was either something I liked or something I detested. You didn't have like a middle ground because, you know, we were teenagers. But I think even, yeah, something like this, I don't think I'd be hard pushed to sort of hate it. Uh, I didn't, you know, like it. So it's almost like, oh, this isn't for us. This is for whoever these sophisticated people are who are purchasing this stuff. It didn't sort of seem to fit into the sort of, you know, the pop walls that were around at the time. It was kind of, a, it was above that or below it or something. It might be named it Just So Joe in his Walker's Crisps. Well, yes. <laughs> but again, that sort of, that vision of style sort of struggled on for a bit because I would say, mm. I know I am alone almost in my appreciation of this but it informs the absolute beginners film 1986 that's very much rooted in all this yes yeah. right up to nobody remembers the tango advert before the big reinvention which is the one of the I don't know the kind of mishmash of Miami Vice and 50s where teenagers descending on the cafe to play pinballs with the strains of Apache by the shadows oh I don't remember that it was something that had a very long reach without really seeming to have that much real world influence that sounds like a cross between like the tango adverts and those old Tizer adverts with like the Oblivion Boys. Okay, well between the two decades that the young fogies were interested in, there were quite a few decades full of entertainment and style and design and whatever that fell outside their radar, should we say. And one of them was your last choice. Now, I don't know what we're going to use as a clip here, because at the time of recording, I've looked high and low for any footage of these guys and found nothing mm, at all. Be but nothing. We'll yeah. just see you on the other side. Okay, whatever I've used there is to represent Paul and Peter Page's hot dogs. <laughs> they are not actual hot dogs, are they, Phil? No, they're not. Basically, this is my abiding memory from the only pantomime, professional pantomime I ever went to, which was, I believe, 1978. It was Aladdin at the New Theatre Oxford. Little and Large were headlining. I can't remember what roles they were playing. Uh, presumably Eddie Large was the genie and maybe Sid Little was the bloke who stands next to the genie. Norman Collier was in there. I remember hardly anything about him. Charlie Caroli was in it. I've probably blotted him from my memory. But what I do remember vividly is in the interval, the lights went down, you know, the house lights went down and all the lights at the stage went down. We're in total blackness. And then under the tiny spotlight, there were a couple of people, you know, a head to tie in black operating these puppet dogs, which they looked a bit like sort of old English sheep dogs. You know, they're lots of tassels, lots of 
fluff around and they just did a sort of thing that performing dogs would do run up ramps sort of roll over and that kind of thing and this was paul and peter page's hot dogs they seemed to go on for ages but i was a very small child then so i just probably you know got bored quite easily but yeah that was my abiding memory of like the only pantomime i remember don't remember anything that little and large did don't remember anything norman collier presumably did his megaphone routine and probably his car window routine don't recall that but i do recall this weird in a frighteningly dark auditorium while these these puppet dogs kind of did their business about what seemed like half a mile away on the other end of the stage yeah they are emblematic of there was a particular strain of puppets that i'm sure even when they were first created and the act was first launched must have seemed about scarily 20 years out of date (laughs) yeah they really are leading the path i've tried to find out anything about Paul and Peter Page there's almost nothing out there apart from there's some variety posters as far back as the 50s saying that hot dogs are from BBC TV there's mm. a photo of them with a puppet that looks uncannily like Dan Hecate <laughs> and they had something to do with that Mr Turnip business which it's always been something the more I read about that the less I understand it <laughs> Mr <laughs> Turnip oh was that a 50s BBC thing whirly gig but oh whirly gig yeah I don't get that at all and the more like I say the the more people try to explain it to me, the more unclear it is. But mm. yeah, the hot dogs were apparently called Toff, Scat and Boney. Oh, right. They had names even. Oh, and they enough. were appearing on Cracker Jacks as late as 1982. Wow. And I assume, well, probably all over ITV as well, because it it's exactly that sort of act that you would get on children's shows around then, where they knew their glory days on the circuit were behind them. Yeah, definitely. And some yeah. of them wisely took to children's television. I mean, I remember them turning up on things. When I say on things, I couldn't tell you what. (laughs) That is a very useful definition. But yeah, just completely gone. But like I say, just an absolute classic example of those puppets that were more frightening than entertaining, but without being grotesque. Yes, yeah, they were just sort of, they were just kind of there. I think it was just, it was just the fact, you know, as well, that you were in complete darkness while these things just like did like very basic sort of tricks so you know you had no choice but to like give them your full attention which is you know something that Charlie Caroli might have thought to do but yeah as I say it it worked because I remember them to this day I mean presumably their husband and wife team aren't they Paul and Peter Page it so often seems to be like a sort of married couples thing with puppetry in this country I don't quite know why I think so like the couple who did Pinky and Perky as well but I have just literally just found out they were on the Little and Large show a couple of times. So there's a link. Oh, there. right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I don't recall ever seeing puppets in Panto. I saw Fred Feast from Coronation Street <laughs> Baron Hardup. Oh, brilliant. Oh, he's <laughs> yeah. good. Was he forever checking the beer? I think there were jokes about that, actually. I just remember the place being full of a million dads saying, it's funny because he's called Fred Feast and he looks like he's had a feast. Hey! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, even Panto itself was a different industry back then. And people in this position could make a comfortable living from it because they'd go on for months as well. Yeah, I mean, it was like the late 70s, like the first... Was this the start of 
when did you know like celebrities from the world of film and tv start appearing in pantos was that in the 70s or that might have been in the 60s i suppose there are examples in the 60s well famously the beatles were in panto a couple of times ah. which people refuse to believe for some reason <laughs> you know because they say no they, they can't have been they did the white album but you know they were just a variety act well yeah yeah I, I think cliff in the shadows were but i think the mass market that. thing really starts with i can remember there being in about would have been about 1979 a lot of excitement about the fact there were proper bona fide celebrities in panto at the liverpool empire which you know the every man in the playhouse still had local talent and so on yeah and obviously that culminated in the bizarre sounds almost unexplainable when you hear it now anecdote about me meeting mr t in kfc in liverpool because he was a genie in aladdin <laughs> and they just got for kentucky fried chicken one night but that yeah I, I think that was that was really when that began was about 79 80 yeah yeah because i think the previous pantos yeah it was generally just you know people who did this for a living and you know i think yeah they were starting to muscle in on that yeah although there was something that i went to that fills people with jealousy to this day which is at the time i had no real idea of what it was or the relevance of it but I actually saw the original production of Ken Campbell's pantomime, Old King Cole. Oh, At yeah, the Everyman yeah. in Liverpool. Yeah, I am full of jealousy. My God. Yeah, I was taken to see that. I remember really enjoying it, but it wasn't until years later that I thought, blimey. Yeah. That's like going to see Six <laughs> Pink Floyd. Yeah. <laughs> was Sylvester McCoy part of the troupe then? He was. Yes. yes. Oh. <laughs> no David Rappaport, sadly. Oh. But yeah, Panto. I mean, I don't even really know what happens in Panto these days. Is it all rock and roll space musicals still? Or I don't. Well, I mean, the one near me is the Hackney Panto, which is or famously never. They've never had celebrities or abs from five as a guest. They've always kept it traditional, and it's a very respected thing. So that's kind of in a separate world of its own. But yeah, I, yeah, I think generally it is it is abs from five. <laughs> as buttons can i just ask though given that you know how traumatized you were by this section of this pantomime and on your previous appearance on looked familiar you talked about the country life christmas box and how much that disturbed you yes yeah was there anything that ever left you looking forward to christmas am <laughs> <laughs> i like the phoebe cates of looks unfamiliar <laughs> It's probably, yeah, something as mundane as the fact that I knew that I was going to be able to watch the wrong box at some point because it's <laughs> always on between Christmas and New Year. So it's like, oh yeah, the wrong box will be on. That's good. But did you prefer it in the afternoon slot or when it be part of the Michael Caine appears in Pulp on Tuesday, foot of the radio times, <laughs> late night season? <laughs> yeah, possibly, yeah. The ones that I would associate with the wrong box, one of the, either the Three Musketeers or the Four Musketeers, because they always seem to show those, you know, the Richard Lester ones. And... Oh God, there's a third film that I just always oh yeah juggernaut i mean yeah that's probably but you know people always every year do the die hard is a christmas movie thing so yeah but i would probably go for juggernaut roy kinnear getting slowly drunk because he knows the ship's going to explode and there was always somehow carry on cruising was always on in the afternoon on the yes. day you finish school yeah. for christmas where it'd be a half day you come home and carry on cruising was on that's true know, actually yeah i don't know what link that had but yeah i do yeah if i ever see a clip of carry on cruising you do have that sort of that vague feeling comes back that school is going on somewhere but not for you and if there's ever a message to draw from looks unfamiliar i think it's that <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> as long as they don't have a copy of Media Mind. Oh God, no! I think <laughs> I think they've all self-destructed, probably. That yeah, the page is fell out. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Oh, thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> Top of the Box Volume 2 by Tim Worthington. The story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes, from Play School Play On to Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox. Comedy, sound effects, show tunes, folk, singing soap stars, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and more albums of Birdsong than you ever knew was possible to exist. More details at timworthington.org. I'm getting no stronger. I'm getting no younger. I don't know how much longer great thoughts can come from the think tank of Obadiah Blank, for whom you've got your lucky stars to thank. But then, just as he didn't know what to do, out of the blue, he had a brainwave. And to the world he gave the greatest invention by a human being the world has ever seen the Obadiah Blank inventing machine. Oh, Obadiah, Obadiah, Obadiah Blank, don't we have our lucky stars to thank for Obadiah Blank? Who was it who invented the walking chair? The machine of Obi Blank. The chair that walked you everywhere. The machine of Obi Blank. Came an umbrella, the machine of Obi Blank. And then it sprouted a propeller, the machine of Obi Blank. Oh, Obadiah, Obadiah, Obadiah Blank. Don't 
like in fact quite like exactly